This podcast is sponsored by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Welcome back to How We Got Here, Season 2, Episode 5. Whew, this season is flying by. I'm your host, Rachel DePampa. I'm an investigative reporter with the NBC affiliate WWBT in Richmond, Virginia. And I can't say this enough. Thank you for your support, your messages, your reviews, and especially the downloads. This week, we are turning back the clock on the week of December 16th through the 22nd. For our next segment, find your favorite blanket and curl up. Get comfortable. You might even want to grab a spot of tea. Okay, I couldn't help myself. December 16th, 1773. A political protest helps jolt the American Revolution to life, the Boston Tea Party. I hear you talking to yourself in your car right now. Wait, wait, how we got here is supposed to be about Virginia, but you might not have known that the colonists here had a tea party of their own. Less than a year after Bostonians dumped 342 chests of tea into the Boston Harbor, Frustrated and angry at Britain for imposing taxation without representation. I see you, D.C. It was November 7, 1774. Just six days earlier, Virginia had started a boycott of British goods. Most merchants agreed to stop the imports, but a few continued. A ship named, what else, Virginia arrived in Yorktown after a journey from England, carrying two half-chests of tea, ordered by a merchant in Williamsburg. And on the morning of November 7th, citizens of Yorktown found out that tea was on board the Virginia. So they boarded the ship and awaited word from the colonial representatives or Burgesses before doing anything. But by noon that day, they had still not received any direction, and they're stuck on a ship. So they hoisted the tea to the edge of the ship, sending it into the York River. News of that Yorktown Tea Party spread to several hundred merchants who were gathering in Williamsburg two days later. And it convinced most of them to sign on to the boycott of British goods. On December 16th, 1773. In Boston, 342 chests of tea were saturated and destroyed in the Boston Harbor. In Virginia, defiant citizens of Yorktown sent just two half chests into the York River. Yes, just two. Come on guys, it's the thought that counts. But it was the defiance of the colonists that helped pour more people towards the steep edge of a brewing revolution.
Flying today is routine. Arrive at the airport. Check bags. Wait in line. Get patted down inappropriately by TSA. Basically, we're hurrying up to wait to get on board. For most of us, flying has always been an option. And we have two brothers to thank for it. A pair of men from Dayton, Ohio, who brought their invention to the sandy beaches of the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And of course, we're talking about Orville and Wilbur, the Wright brothers. Their historic first flight, December 17, 1903. Orville piloted the first try. It lasted just 12 seconds and 120 feet. But on the fourth and final flight of the day, Wilbur went 852 feet, staying airborne for 59 seconds. An incredible feat that would change society around the globe, much faster than anyone could have anticipated. So what does Virginia have to do with all this? More than you might think. A story printed in the Virginian Pilot newspaper on December 18, 1903, the day after the soaring success, helped give the brothers national attention, but for all the wrong reasons. On the afternoon of December 17, the Wright brothers proudly walked into the Kitty Hawk Weather Bureau asking to use the telegraph to tell their family in Ohio what they had just achieved. But before the brothers got out the door, a message came back. It was from the operator in Norfolk, who had just passed on the original message. He asked if he could tell his local newspaper about the 59 seconds of flight. I know we're talking about telegraphs, but this is totally the telephone game. You'll see. That telegraph operator in Norfolk ignored their response and told his friend, a reporter for the Virginian pilot. That man and his bosses worked to write a story with the few details they were given, putting something together they thought was worth reading. I think you can see where this has already gone off the rails, but it only gets worse. The resulting article was horrendously wrong. The headline at the top of the front page read in all capital letters, Flying Machine Soars Three Miles in Teeth of High Wind Over Sandy Hills and Waves on Carolina Coast. Three miles? The longest flight of the Wright brothers on December 17th had gone just 852 feet. Three miles is nearly 16,000 feet. The subheadline on the right side of the paper said things like, three years of hard secret work by two Ohio brothers crowned with success. And with man as passenger, huge machine flies like bird under perfect control. We hear this term a lot these days, but this really does warrant fake news. There's one paragraph in the article that really sums up the embellishment. 
I asked my producer Colton to find his inner old newsman voice. Like a monster bird, the invention hovered above the breakers and circled over the rolling sand hills at the command of its navigator. And after sowing for three miles, it gracefully descended to earth again and rested lightly upon the spot selected by the man in the car as a suitable landing place. Thank you, Colton. People could buy this paper for just three cents, by the way. It's 1903. And to make matters worse, the Virginian pilot distributed this made-up story on the Associated Press wire service, meaning it was printed in dozens of newspapers all across the country. It wouldn't be until January 5th, 1904, just over two weeks after their first flight, that the Wright brothers issued a statement to the Associated Press calling the Virginian pilot article a, quote, fictitious story, incorrect in almost every detail. They even gave the AP a truthful account of what had happened. Their statement was circulated, but few newspapers printed the correction. Well, because the truth was not nearly as exciting. December 17, 1903 the first time humans took to the sky in an invention that would lead to the modern-day airplane. But it was December 18, 1903, that a Virginia newspaper chose fiction over facts, staining its reputation to embellish an achievement that would go on to change the world, with or without the true story. Think about this. We're still in a place in this country where slavery existed here longer than it hasn't. For 246 years, it was a brutal practice in the colonies and eventual states. It was an accepted and legal way of life until lawmakers added to the Constitution, finally giving freedom to those who had dreamed of it for generations. December 18, 1865, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution to abolish slavery in the United States was formally adopted. Monumental. In 1865, that was the 246-year mark of the existence of slavery in what is now the United States. And passing and ratifying the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery throughout this country in perpetuity is a momentous occasion. If that voice sounds familiar, it's Dr. Karen Sherry, curator of exhibitions at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. She joined us in season one. We are so glad to have you back on the How We Got Here podcast. Oh, the feelings mutual. She's a trained art historian turned history nerd. You can't really turn a corner in Richmond without smacking into a historical plaque or, or some other site that had a significant place in our history. And in the first two seasons, we've given Dr. Sherry the unenviable job of tackling an extremely difficult and dark time in America's history. Something she does with so much grace. Some of it is the nature of history. History is 
often very complex. There are, there are winners and losers. There are aspects of our national history, of our state history that we champion and we celebrate, but there's often a darker side to that history as well. So let's take a journey to see how the 13th Amendment came to be and Virginia's role in doing away with this abhorrent practice. At the outbreak of the Civil War, there were about four million enslaved black Americans in this country, which a half a million of which lived in Virginia. While many of them found some degree of freedom or emancipation during the war, it wasn't until 1865 that the practice of slavery officially ended in this nation. And for this story to move forward, you need a little U.S. History 101 refresher. How to pass a new amendment to the Constitution. And it ain't easy. Both houses of Congress, the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives, have to pass it by a two-thirds majority. And then the proposed amendment goes to the states, and three-quarters of those state legislatures have to pass the amendment for it to be ratified. And I think, you know, our founding generation, rightfully so, made it difficult to amend the Constitution. That's why there are these high bars. And you have this newly restored nation with the sights, sounds, and smells of the Civil War not yet buried by time, topped with generations of deep-rooted beliefs over keeping slaves. The intense divisions that led to the Civil War, that erupted in the Civil War, continued throughout not just the war years, but in the post-war period. That kind of division, those, those mixed feelings, are borne out in the actual ratification process. It was a pretty dramatic process. It came down to a very, very close vote. The 13th Amendment was first proposed in December of 1863. A few months later, it passed the U.S. Senate fairly easily, but it was rejected by the House. Lincoln set his sights on the looming presidential election in the fall of 1864. Lincoln, Republican, anti-slavery president, he won re-election. And the Republican Party, which was very different from the modern-day Republican Party, so the 19th century Republican Party, they won majorities in both houses of Congress. Lincoln took this as a mandate and tried again to push the 13th Amendment through. He and his advocates went through a concerted effort of pressuring the congressmen, of trying to get votes. For those listeners who saw the Steven Spielberg movie, Lincoln, that very much dramatizes the fight in Congress to pass the 13th Amendment. By the way, that movie was shot in Richmond. Spielberg turned our state capitol building into the White House. And I may or may not have seen Oscar winner Daniel Day-Lewis walking through the streets of Carytown dressed like Lincoln. Dr. Sherry says, for the most part, Hollywood got it right.
There's of course some dramatization and some need for willing suspension of disbelief. It's definitely grounded in, in historical fact. They got a lot of it right. And you know, I'm a huge fan of Daniel Day-Lewis, so you know, even if it were totally fictionalized, I'd want to just watch it to see him. <laughs> but anyways. <sighs> Same. <laughs> Let's hop out of this rabbit hole and back into our story. Remember, the Senate has passed the 13th Amendment, but it's a nail-biter in the House. And the fate of the 13th Amendment really wasn't known until the actual vote was taking place and all the votes were being tallied. In dramatic fashion and by just a couple of votes, the House of Representatives did pass the 13th Amendment at the end of January, 1865. And it's important to point out when Congress passed this amendment, no representatives from Virginia and many of the other seceded states were actually seated in Congress at the time. But Lincoln had the votes, and the proposed amendment goes to the states for ratification. There were 36 states in the Union, in the country, I should say, because that was including the rebellious states. 27 were required for ratification. That's a high bar, 27 states. Interestingly enough, something you may not know unless you dig into history often, Virginia did play a part in formally abolishing slavery. Virginia was one of those states that ratified the 13th Amendment. Virginia was the 12th state to do so. It, it actually ratified the 13th Amendment in February of 1865. Yup, while the Civil War was still going on. How is that possible? You might be scratching your head thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, Richmond, it was this capital of the Confederacy, but Virginia actually had two governments during the Civil War. There was a Confederate government based in Richmond, but there was also a restored government that remained loyal to the Union. It even had a governor. It was that restored government that really just represented areas of Virginia that were under Union control, so mostly in the north and eastern portions of the state. It was that restored government that passed the 13th Amendment. And that's how Virginia is counted. Among certain communities, especially African-American communities, there, there would, was widespread joy, and, and the news of the 13th Amendment was met with you know, cheers and open arms and, and great excitement. But history is muddled, and one piece of legislation isn't going to end hundreds of years and generations of beliefs. There were many who, in theory, favored the 13th Amendment, but in practice still held lots of prejudices against black people. You know, they were probably ambivalent. Even though maybe they were freed by law, they didn't necessarily have a place to live, they didn't have a livelihood outside of the system of slavery that they had existed in, often for generations and generations. The celebrations were tempered by the fact that while the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, it did not define the status or rights of the newly freed black Americans. Those were fights yet to come. Even though slavery was abolished in our country in 1865, we're still feeling the legacies of those 246 years of 
the institution of slavery, legacies that are deeply rooted in discriminatory and racist notions that puts one category of people over another category of people. The end of slavery marked the beginning of Jim Crow laws, codes to perpetuate racism. And although December 18th 1865 is a memorable moment in history. It also marks the monumental new struggle for black equality, a struggle traced even into the threads of recent history. On last week's episode of How We Got Here, we described in great detail the death of the United States first president, George Washington. That was December 14, 1799. But news didn't travel as fast as a tweet or email back then. It took four days for the news of his death to go from Mount Vernon in Virginia to the Capitol at the time in Philadelphia. Oh, I think that's wild. <laughs> when you realize how important this news is, that it takes that long. Now, part of it may be that it just took a while to confirm because it's so shocking, so surprising, so unexpected that rumors get out in front of reality. But when reality sets in, it's truly terrible and dark time. Recognize that voice? That's Kevin Walsh, constitutional law professor at the University of Richmond. You heard from him back in season one when we talked about Chief Justice John Marshall's funeral procession through Richmond. And John Marshall has a grim connection to Washington's death. He delivered the news to Congress. John Marshall was a congressman. He had actually been recruited to run for Congress by Washington. He didn't want to, but uh, he did because Washington ordered him to, and he won. Congress was in session and they hear the word of General Washington's death, and Marshall is actually on the floor of Congress, and it falls to John Marshall to announce to Congress formally the death of the revered General Washington. He has a speech that he gives of his own, testifying to uh, his and the country's honor and respect for Washington. And along with Marshall's speech came resolutions from Representative Henry Lee of Virginia, read by Marshall, that included a legendary quote that Washington is known by today. That he was first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. When you try to sum up someone like George Washington and his significance to the country, to be able to do that in such powerful language, right? First in war. Without General Washington's leadership, we wouldn't have had a country. First in peace. You have to build the country. You have to hold it together. But this isn't just about war and peace and, and wartime leadership, peacetime leadership. It's the true affection that people have. Well, how much more powerful than all that wordiness to say first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. Everyone knows what those words mean at the time. Those words came out of John Marshall's mouth, but they were from Henry Lee's pen. 
But Marshall wasn't just talking about the nation's first president. It was personal. It was painful for him because Washington was his hero. And then he ultimately gives the tribute to Washington of writing his biography in five volumes. So he kind of announces his death and writes his life. And Marshall's speech on the death of his hero shows the sadness, even heartache, felt by not only the man who would go on to become the longest-serving chief justice in Supreme Court history, but fellow Americans. Mr. Speaker, the melancholy event which was yesterday announced with doubt has been rendered but too certain. Our Washington is no more. The hero, the sage, and the patriot of America, the man on whom in times of danger every eye was turned and all hopes were placed, lives now only in his own great actions and in the hearts of an affectionate and afflicted people. George Washington was the man everyone turned to in times of trouble. But the country's first president was gone, and it took four days for the news to reach the young nation's leaders on December 18, 1799. The news delivered by another giant in American history, a Richmond native, whose legendary career was just getting started. In today's world, we're fairly accustomed to public displays of military might, from enormous parades in China and North Korea, to tanks rolling through Russia's Red Square. And if you look back into the first half of the 1900s, your mind may immediately go to the chilling footage of Nazis parading through the streets of Berlin. But there was an American assertion of military dominance that started right here in Virginia on December 16, 1907, and it was known as the Great White Fleet. In the last years of his presidency, Teddy Roosevelt ordered a massive fleet of the U.S. Navy to circumnavigate the globe to not only project American military power, but to prove that the Navy could shift resources from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific. The makeup of the Great White Fleet, 16 battleships, painted white, hence the name, manned by 14,000 sailors and Marines. The ships were harbored in Hampton Roads, and these men were embarking on a naval deployment on a scale the world had never seen. Just imagine, going around the world with a fleet of steam-powered steel battleships. All in all, the trip covered 43,000 nautical miles over 14 months, nearly two trips around the Earth. The fleet stopped in 20 different ports on six continents, all of this before the First World War. It's easy to see why it's considered one of the greatest achievements in the history of the U.S. Navy. You can also guess there are a few good stories to come out of such a journey. So let's start at the beginning. 
It was a warm, cloudy morning in Hampton Roads on December 16, 1907. Teddy Roosevelt stood on the deck of his presidential yacht, the Mayflower. Why didn't they call it Yacht Force One? I know, another bad one. <laughs> the commander-in-chief was greeted with a thunderous 21-gun salute as each of the 16 ships steamed into the ocean in a long, majestic column. Picture it, the coal-burning ship stacked spewing, billowing clouds of black smoke into the gray sky. But this parade of the sea almost didn't happen. That's because, leading up to the big day, almost nobody was aware of Roosevelt's plan to send the fleet around the world, not even his own cabinet. They just thought the fleet would be going from the east to the west coast as part of a training exercise. A senator from Maine threatened to withhold money for the venture, but Roosevelt challenged him, saying he already had the money and he dared Congress to, quote, try and get it back. Nobody took on Teddy, so the fleet took off. The sailors were kept busy with day-to-day -day routines and training, but the battleships did have some comforts of home. Pianos, phonographs, you know, the grandparents of record players. If you're a kid, Google it. Plenty of playing cards, even pool tables and silent movies. Sorry, there really isn't a sound for silent movies. I'd add it again, I know. Come on, you love listening. Anyway, there are a few notable moments from this worldwide cruise that are worth mentioning, and one of them was early on. Less than a month after leaving Virginia, the fleet anchored in Rio de Janeiro, and their first night there nearly obliterated the goodwill between the United States and Brazil. A brutal bar fight. It happened at one of the more rowdier drinking establishments. Two local dock workers got into an argument and one of them threw a bottle at the other, but missed his intended target. The bottle whizzed through the air finding the next thing in its path, a U.S. sailor. If you've ever seen a bar fight in a movie, you know what happens next. The inebriated free-for-all spilled into the streets as both sides threw rocks, even bricks, at each other. When police finally arrived, the two sides were separated and the sailors were led back to their battleships. After an investigation the next day, naval commanders testified that the civilians were the aggressors, and Brazilian officials agreed, clearing the sailors of any wrongdoing. From there, the voyage continued west, making a few stops before arriving to an incredible scene of pomp and celebration in Australia, eight months after the journey began. The fleet was greeted by more than 250,000 people who had stayed up all night, so they wouldn't miss the ship's arrival. The following eight days 
were non-stop celebrations in honor of the naval visitors. But the long days at sea and days of endless partying was starting to get to some of the sailors. One of them was found asleep on a park bench in Sydney with a sign hanging above his head. It read, Yes, I am delighted with the Australian people. Yes, I think your park is the finest in the world. I am very tired and would like to go to sleep. I don't know about eight days of partying. I have two toddlers, so I do know about lack of sleep. A sign like that seems handy. Two months later, the Great White Fleet headed for Japan. But while going through the South China Sea, they encountered one of the worst typhoons in decades. One sailor even wrote about a moment of incredible drama. You're not going to believe this one. Saying that one of his comrades was washed overboard by a huge wave. But then apparently that same wave carried the man to another ship, throwing him onto the deck. What? Remember, this is a story from one of the sailors on board. Did he embellish? Who cares? It's a freaking amazing story. Anyway, the fleet survived the typhoon unscathed. From Japan, they sailed into the Indian Ocean, stopping in modern-day Sri Lanka, where the crew was inundated with complimentary tea from none other than Sir Thomas Lipton himself. Yes, the same Lipton name you see today in the grocery stores. I told you their adventures were really cool. When the fleet finally crossed the Atlantic, they arrived back in Hampton Roads on a rainy February 22, 1909. February 22nd, by the way, George Washington's birthday. A timely arrival, I'd say. Once again, aboard the yacht, the Mayflower, President Roosevelt welcomed them back. He himself greeted with another 21-gun salute. December 16, 1907, the Great White Fleet left Virginia. After 14 months and enough nautical miles to travel the world twice, this American show of military might was a huge success. When the fleet arrived back home in early 1909, Roosevelt only had two weeks left in office. He later declared that the mission was the most important service he rendered for peace. One sailor put it simply, we wanted to show the world what we could do. This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you, digital director Kate Albright for your masterful mixes Without Kate, you don't even want to hear what my rough cut of this podcast sounds like. And to executive producer Colton Weekly for his fanciful reenactment of an early 20th century newsman. Let's listen one more time. Like a monster bird, the invention hovered above the breakers and circled over the rolling sand hills at the command of its navigator. When he recorded that, he explicitly told me not to share it with our newsroom. <laughs> you know how that turned out. And to our guests this episode, two returning guests at that, Kevin Walsh with the University of Richmond and Karen Sherry with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. 
next week on Episode 6, A Fiery Christmas Disaster at a Richmond Theater. Plus, a U.S. president is born in Virginia, but he only lived here 16 months. So we're milking that for all we can. He's the only U.S. president to have been considered a Confederate citizen prior to becoming president of the United States. And a special guest appearance by the one and only NBC12 anchor, Kurt Autry. These two young boys were lured away because they were albino children. They were African-American albino children with long dreadlocks and unusual looking eyes. He helps us tell the story of two children apparently abducted and forced into a freak show. That's next week on Episode 6. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like this from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday.